You've had hard days, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, as I talk about it even now, probably some are coming to mind. Hard days, difficult days, days that stick out as impossible. Days that stand out because they literally suck the life out of you. They literally crush your soul. Hard days. Just over a year ago, end of July last year, was one of those days for me and my family. We moved out of our dream house in Burlington, a city in which we'd lived for 15 years, to come here to a city we don't know at all, to pastor a church we were just getting to know, to lead a people whom we were just beginning to build relationship with. It had been a very difficult year leading up to this moment, and the moving day was dark. I think I walked just over 36,000 steps that day. In fact, I believe there's proof on the screen. I was so just horrified that that's what happened. I took a picture for it, not knowing I'd be able to use it one day in a sermon. And the hardest step was the last one. This is the last step I took out of my house. I took a shot of the empty garage. I didn't show Nikki for, I don't even know, like a year, because I knew she'd come completely unhinged. Walking is hard enough. Walking away almost kills you every time. I walked away from a 19-year career in media this past February. It's a shot of me directing from a helicopter. It was one of the highlights of my career so far as we spent a week in a helicopter shooting aerials over Israel. Our pilot was a retired Air Force colonel, so you can imagine the things that he did. At one point, we were flying towards Qumran, which is where John the Baptist spent some time, and we were flying down through the Jordan Valley uh, and then came up over the cliffs that are right on the west side of the Dead Sea. And he literally came over those cliffs and then dropped the helicopter like a stone down through a wadi. I thought I was about to go see Jesus. It was crazy. Super exciting, super cool, one of those great moments. Walking away from that career was very, very difficult. Walking away is hard. Walking through things, though, I think is the most difficult. You should see a picture of me and my nephew Cameron. He was two or two and a half years old. And this is the day I took him out for some man time because his daddy had just died in a building accident on the mission field in Africa. So I was stepping in for a time to help him walk through that cataclysmic event. Walking away is hard. Walking through things is harder, right? Some of you might be walking through some things right now. Life is hard. But here's the hope. Someday, you're going to get to sit down and take a load off because you'll have come to know and experience firsthand that peace starts and ends with God. That is, of course, if Psalm 23 is true. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overfloweth. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of my God forever. Somebody said, hallelujah. Again, this is one of those psalms you hardly have to preach. Hope I didn't throw you off there switching to the New King James. That's the one I've been reading it in for the entirety of my life. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil sounds a lot better. Psalm 23. Peace starts and ends with God. We see one of the first reasons that peace begins and ends with God right here off the top. Peace starts and ends with God because God is always turning things on its head. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my Shepherd. I've preached this psalm at least seven or eight times in my career, and this point has never occurred to me until this week. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is a shepherd. The Lord, the most magnificent, awesome thing in all the universe, the master maker of all that is the most exceptional thing there is in all of existence. The Lord is as common as an everyday working person. That's what shepherds were in ancient Israel. Even to this day in Israel, there's shepherds all throughout the land. I've met many of them. You can go nowhere outside of a city in Israel and not bump into a Bedouin shepherd or two. Almost invariably, they look a little shepherdish. They look like they haven't seen a shower in a while. And they're very happy to see you because you're not a sheep. Right? You, you can imagine you're out in the hill country day after day after day chasing sheep around. You see a human being, you're like, hey, hey, do you want some coffee? Bedouins are famous for their hospitality. And with modern Israel as the picture of the people of Israel that so many of us have in our mind, we forget that in antiquity the people of Israel were essentially Bedouins, they were essentially nomadic desert shepherds. They were as common as grass. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the God of the universe, and he's a blue-collar dude, and he's yours. I mean, you could quit right there. The Lord is my shepherd. Isn't that nice? Because I have a hard time relating to the God and King of the universe. Because I am just a common, ordinary, working dude. When you tell me here that the Lord is a shepherd, and not only is He a shepherd, a common, everyday, working person, but that He's mine, knowing that and beginning to experience that, that'll give me peace. Because I'll find myself having everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd. Continue in verse 1. I shall not want. This is a a rare example where the English Standard Version, the version from which I'm preaching, falls down compared to some of the others. In the New King James, for example, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. 
That's a lot easier to stomach than I shall not want because we all know that we all want for things all the time. Right? I don't own a Porsche. I want one. I don't have one. I'm in want. Right? So anecdotally, either I'm crazy or the Bible is wrong. I shall not want. So we need to look through this translation, indeed through the New King James, back to the original. This was written originally in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, and it reads, Lo echsar. Echsar means to be in want. Lo means not. Lo, not. Echsar, be in want. I shall not be in want. You may lack things from time to time, but you shall not be in want. Take the example of sweet Cameron, my nephew, who lost his dad. Yes, we still lack Robbie in our life. He's still with Jesus and not here with us. We still lack Robbie. But as Cameron goes to football practice in Texas, a state to which he has recently moved with his mother, my sister Kate, and his new father, Tom, who took a church in Dallas, you could not look at this now crazy six, seven-year-old, nine-year-old, wow, time flies, <laughs> running onto that football field full of joy, discovering the things that God has made him to do and say, that child is in lack. Isn't that helpful? It's not an all or nothing, like I either have everything I want or God is not kind. I shall not be in Want. Ask yourself the question, shall be in want? I shall not be in want. Is this an objective reality? Is this a future promise or is this an act of will? It's all three. Receive it. I shall not be in want. This is an objective reality. From God's perspective, you have everything you need. I shall not be in want. This is a future promise, keeping in mind the big finish that God has in mind. When He will restore all things to the way they're meant to be. When He will inaugurate His kingdom on earth, a kingdom in which you'll have a place. From a future promise perspective, I shall not be in want. Therefore, in light of the objective reality as God sees it, in light of the future promise as God has spoken it, I will say of myself, I shall not be in one. It's an objective reality. It's a future promise and an active will. It's all three because you are in a dynamic relationship with a living and active God who has worked in the past, is working now, and is working towards a big finish. Which is why verse 2 is so beautiful. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know what still waters are in the Hebrew? It's an oasis. He leads me to an oasis. Isn't that so much better than still waters? I mean, I all like to sit by a still lake. I like it. But the idea of an oasis after a long, hard journey through dryness and death, an oasis is much more compelling. He leads me to an oasis.
He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He makes me to lie down, and the Hebrew is he supervises me. Literally, the root word is menahel, which is supervisor. How encouraging is this, that God cares enough about you that he will supervise you to resting places. Because you can't find the way yourself. And sometimes, you know this is true, you can't even help yourself. So God steps in to supervise you. He supervises you to resting places. He restores my soul. You know what restores means in the Hebrew? Yeshuvav. He will bring it back. (laughs) You feel like you've lost hope, you've lost your will to live, you've lost the reason for your existence. God is in the business of restoring that, of bringing that back to you. He brings back your soul. What's really wonderful about all this is that he doesn't do any of this because you're so good, you're so awesome, and you deserve it. You see it right there in the text. Why does he do this? He does it for the glory of his name. Let's read it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Let's talk about this for a second. God has his good name to defend. I'll take you here to Genesis chapter 17. This is an account of when the Lord God made his deal with Abraham. This is where God sets his covenant with Abraham. I'm going to read to you from verses 1 through verse 8, Genesis 17. Listen to the deal God makes with Abraham. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." The thing about that promise to Abraham is that God kept it. He was faithful to Abraham. And he was faithful to Abraham's son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob. And he was faithful to Jacob's son Joseph, who was sent as a slave into Egypt and who rose to a place of prominence as the number two behind Pharaoh in charge of all the land of Egypt during profound famine years, when his good stewardship preserved not only the land of Egypt, but many of the lands around Egypt, including Joseph's brothers and their families from the land of Canaan, just to the north of Egypt, the land of Israel. 
And God was faithful to the descendants of Joseph and his brothers who sojourned in Egypt for more than 400 years, multiplying in the land of Goshen to the extent that the Egyptians enslaved them and used them as forced labor to build their empire to the point that they were so oppressed that they cried out to God and God with a mighty and a strong arm freed them from slavery in Egypt. And God remained faithful to that faithless people as they wandered in the desert for 40 years. It could have been a trip of days if they'd just gone straight north. But because God knew the hardness of their heart, he took them on a long journey through the wilderness of Sinai. And I have spent time in the wilderness of Sinai, and it is a bleak and soul-crushing place. And though they were faithless, the Lord remained faithful to them faithfully bringing them under Joshua's leadership into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land which he helped them conquer and subdue under them. So that one day, a righteous king named David, a shepherd boy from Bethlehem, could ascend the throne of Israel and rule as the mightiest king in Jewish history. He was faithful to King David's faithless son Solomon and allowed him to build a temple to the Lord God a place where the Lord faithfully set his heart and set his eye so that the prayers of his people would arise before him. He was faithful to those people through hundreds of years of faithlessness as evil king arose after evil king, replaced once in a while by a faithful king. Josiah comes to mind. Hezekiah comes to mind. Kings who restored the worship of the Lord God and put away the worship of all the false gods that the Israelite people had brought in in the interim. And God was faithful after he had caused them to be sent into exile under the Babylonians to return them to their land. He was faithful in the fullness of time to send to them his one and only son to become a man, Jesus Christ. Who lived faithfully before his father, perfectly fulfilling his father's will, never sinning once, never transgressing against his father's perfect will even once. A good man, in fact, a God-man, who welcomed the oppressed and the downtrodden into his embrace. I've been reading the Synoptic Gospels recently. Everywhere Jesus goes, you know what he does? He welcomes the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the outcasts. He heals everybody. He says, there's room for you at my side. He's so radical, in fact, that the religious elite of his day, people like us, get all up in arms because they see him disturbing the status quo to the point that they begin fearing the loss of their power and influence. But not because they were upset and not because the Romans were worried about rebellion, but because in the fullness of time, according to the Father's will, Jesus Christ was sent to atone for our sins. This man, this God-man, this God the Son made flesh, was hung on a cross between two thieves to suffer and die the penalty for your sin placed upon his shoulders. The Bible's clear that the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to die because of the weight of sin that we carry. But Jesus Christ hung on that cross once for all, and he suffered and died in your place for your sin. But miracle of miracles, he didn't stay dead. He arose the third day, resurrected, triumphing over the power of Satan's sin, death and hell, bodily, once and for all. It's beautiful. He appeared to his friends and he hung out with them. And after a time, he ascended to the Father's right hand, right in front of their eyes, sat down in victory. And he's sitting there even now, interceding for you. He's your cheering section. 
He's going to get up from that throne one day to return again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place. And on that great and glorious day, as you behold him in all his majesty and power, I am sure that you will think to yourself, faithful. Faithful God. And you'll get to meet Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rachel and Leah. And they'll tell you some stories. In light of the story that you've been caught up in, you can know that God's faithfulness to you, at least, at the very least, equals his faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the very least, his faithfulness equals the faithfulness he showed to David, to Solomon. As you are in Christ, God the Father will keep faith with you like he kept faith with God the Son. This is why you can read and own the rest of Psalm 23 like you mean it. Let me finish with verses 4 through 6. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of my God forever. What does it look like to experience that peace starts and ends with God? Let me show you from the text. The first thing it looks like is perspective and fearlessness. Let me read it to you in the Hebrew and then I'll translate it into the English. Hear it in the original. Gam ki elech mavet lo ki imdi. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, gai tzalmavet, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. In the Hebrew, the thou art with me part reads this way. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you stand with me. He's standing with you. Your fearlessness comes from that. You can be fearless even in the valley of the shadow of death because God himself is not just with you, he stands with you. I like that idea. We have it in our national anthem. We stand on guard for thee. God himself stands on guard for thee in the valley of the shadow of death through which he's leading you. He is on his feet. He stands with you. That's where the fearlessness comes from. Here's where the perspective comes from. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay, God didn't bring you to the valley of the shadow of death to leave you there. He brought you to the valley of the shadow of death to lead you through. This is something we all struggle with. Why would God lead me through suffering? Why would God allow bad things to happen? Again, back to Exodus. I've been reading the Exodus narrative recently. And it is just startling to think that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God could bring upon Pharaoh and his people the manifold plagues so that the Egyptians could see that God was the one and only God. 
He hardens Pharaoh's heart to show forth his glory. Now, that may be a hard teaching for us, and we may feel a little uncomfortable with that. That's okay. We're not God. We don't have to be completely comfortable with that. We don't have to answer for the nuances entailed therein. But think on this. If God cares enough about his fame that he would harden the heart of Pharaoh so that he could visit Egypt with plagues to glorify himself in the sight of the Egyptians. Does it seem impossible to you that he might lead you through the valley of the shadow of death so that on the other side you could look back and go, my God is strong. My God is mighty. My God cares for me. How would you know that God was strong if he'd never had to show himself strong in your life? If your life was all prosperity and ease, what need would you have for a strong God? None at all. He didn't bring you to the valley of the shadow of death to leave you there. He brought you to the valley to lead you through the valley. That's where the perspective comes from. I'll tell you what peace that starts and ends with God looks like. It looks like strength, discipline, and comfort. Hear it in the Hebrew. Shavtecha, v'mish'atecha, hema, yenachmuni. Thy rod and thy staff, they, hema, yenachmuni, will comfort me. What does a shepherd use his rod and his staff for? If you've never seen a Middle Eastern shepherd, you have no idea. I've seen many a Middle Eastern shepherd. You know what they use the rod and the staff for? To hit things, usually living things. Whack. Not that way, this way. Whack. Not that way, this way. Whack. Most of them ride donkeys, and they're whipping the thing constantly. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Hurry up. Sometimes a shepherd whoops a sheep for direction. Sometimes he uses his rod and staff to whoop a wolf for safety. So keep in mind that if he's whacking you on the left side, there's probably a cliff on the right. You look, but I can't see the cliff because it's nighttime, it's raining, and there's fog. Okay, you should thank the Lord that he's whooping you on your left side because there's a cliff to the right. So look, whether he's saving you from cliffs or wolves or from yourself, God disciplines you because he loves you. Hebrews 12, 16 puts this plainly. The Lord disciplines them whom he loves. But no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Why do you keep hitting me? Um, Because there's a cliff to your left. Remember the scene in The Horse and His Boy? When Shasta spends the night in the mountains? He's like, I'm the most miserable wretch of all time. Separated from my friends, lost in the darkness, and now there's a monster on my right-hand side whose breath is as big as a mountain. And eventually he can't stand it anymore, screams out, Who are you? <laughs> and the monster says, One who has waited long for you to speak. <laughs> and it's Aslan, the great lion, who's been walking on his right-hand side all night. And as the sun comes up in response to the lion's presence, of course, Aslan is the Christ figure in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Shasta falls off his stupid horse 
and sees that on his right-hand side lies a cliff. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I'll tell you what the peace of God looks like. I'm almost done. It looks like brazen confidence. Ta'aroch lefnai shulchan neged tzorarai. Ta'aroch, you will lengthen lefanai in front of me. Shulchan, a banqueting table. Literally in the Hebrew here, you set up a long banquet table in my enemy's face. Okay, hear me, church. The God at your side has got things so under control, he wants to set up a dinner party in a war zone. He looks at the wreckage of your life and he thinks, this is a very good place to throw a party. Let's eat. So look, keep that in mind next time you find yourself in a dark moment. Remember that to God, this is so not a big deal that he's ready to party in the midst of it. In fact, he's ready to set up a long banquet table in the face of your enemies. So the least you can and should do in line of this is find a moment of beauty in the midst of your next moment of darkness. Because guaranteed, God's already sitting down. He's got a drink. He's just waiting for you to recognize. He's just waiting for you to see that he's got beauty for you in the midst of your enemies. I love that part. He's throwing parties in war zones. Why? Because he's extravagant that way. You've poured out the oil of fatness on my head. My cup is satiated. He's so good, he's going to give you more than you need. He's so good, it's going to be like someone poured a vat of oil on your head. You ever got oil on your hands? It sticks for a while. God's so good, his goodness is like oil he pours on your head. Its stickiness is like impossible to get rid of. Good thing. That's how good God is. He's so good, he's going to chase you down as long as you live, and you're going to sit down in his house forever. Surely goodness and mercy will chase me all the days of my life. And I sat down in the house of God for length of days. The goodness and mercy of God is chasing you. Friends, the blue collar God of the universe is yours. You have everything you need, including relief in dry seasons and a soul that's been brought back from the brink. Not because you are good, but because God is. So keep things in perspective and be fearless because he brought you to the valley to bring you through the valley. And strength and discipline and comfort are yours so long as you're part of his Flock, so live like it. In fact, live like your life is a dinner party in a war zone, like you've been given more than you need, like goodness and mercy are chasing you. Won't that improve your week? Just that one last point. Goodness and mercy will be chasing you this week. So go out there and live like one day you're going to get to sit down and take a load off. And I sat down in the house of my God 
forever. You'll get to do that, sit down and take a load off. Why? Because you'll have come to know and experience firsthand <sighs> that peace, well, it starts and ends with God. <laughs>